everybody, and welcome to session eight of Dear Mr. Potter, the Storywonk Harry Potter seminar. Eight long weeks have brought us this far, but we shall go no further. Well, we'll go a little further on Sunday, but uh, we're done tonight with Harry Potter and the Philosopher's slash Sorcerer's Stone. I kind of wish, in retrospect, that I had perhaps paced this last selection a little more carefully. I'd forgotten, even reading it today, I'd forgotten how swiftly this last chapter of the book passes by. We spend very little time on any of these major significant events, so this is possibly going to be a short seminar tonight. I will have space at the end for Q&As. Let me just put that up front. So if you have any driving, urgent questions that you would like me to address at the end of tonight's seminar, then please speak up at any point uh, through tonight's proceedings. I see Maya and Michelle and Lee and Chris and Katie and Robbie. I see everyone here in the YouTube chat. On Twitter, I see that Sarah has had her storms knocked out. Uh, has had her storms knocked out. Yes, the internet has sadly taken uh, Sarah's storms offline. What an unfortunate set of circumstances that is. Uh, the Yes, Sarah has lost her internet to the storms. Beth is here and Liz is here and Nora is here. Guys, thank you. And Allison is here. Thank you so much for joining me, guys. This has been such a fun seminar. Um, having the opportunity to look at a book like Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, to take it seriously, to discuss it with, with smart and incisive and like-minded people... This is the reason that I do the things that I do. This is what gets me out of bed in the morning. Sitting down with you guys every Tuesday evening uh, and hanging out and talking about Harry Potter, just as we hung out and talked about Outlander, just as we will hang out and talk about the mysterious next book. More about that in just a few minutes. Um, getting to sit and talk with you all, getting to spend the time, having the excuse to spend the time and explore these amazing books... This is what it's all about. So thank you, firstly, for joining me throughout this entire run of the seminar. Many more await us in the future, I'm sure. Uh, thank you, of course, also to our supporters on Patreon. People who pledge us a few dollars a month to help us do what we do here at Storylong. This entire endeavor is only possible because of our wonderful patrons. I can only take the time off from my day job to read these books and to prepare these lectures and to, to put all this stuff together because you guys are impossibly, crazily, wonderfully generous. So a sincere thank you. Uh, I enjoy this at least as much as you all do, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Possibly a little more, in fairness. Um, before we get down to business tonight, then, before we return to Hogwarts for the last time this year... A little business, a little announcement. You may have noticed that the voting concluded on the next seminar vote last night, and we have a winner. The winner will surprise almost no one, I'm sure, but allow me to introduce to you our next seminar book. Our next seminar will be In Want of a Wife, a Pride and Prejudice seminar. This seminar will begin on June the 19th. Uh, June the 19th is a Friday. More about that in just a moment. Um, I'm not moving the whole thing to a Friday. Uh, we're going to change the schedule just a little bit. Allow me to review, though, the fact that Pride and Prejudice took 50%, a solid, firm 50% of the vote this time around, making up for its last-minute defeat in the last seminar. Mort came in second. Mort actually edged out a wrinkle in time quite substantially toward the end of the vote. So Mort will be on the list next time around. Um... But we will begin uh, in Want of a Wife, a Pride and Prejudice seminar, on June the 19th. It is going to be a seven-session uh, seminar, though I hold the right to expand that when we get a little closer to it. We are also probably looking at our stretch goals on Patreon, patreon.com slash storywonk. 
We have a stretch goal for uh, producing commentary tracks for every episode of the BBC 1995 Pride and Prejudice series. We may well end up doing that at the same time. So it is going to be a summer of Pride and Prejudice from your friends at Storywalk. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Kay is saying that the seminars need their own soundtrack. I think you may well be right. I think you may well be onto something there. So that is our next seminar in Want of a Wife, Pride and Prejudice. I will say, the reason that this first session is taking place on... Let me kill the uh, slide there. Start as I mean to go on and kill the slides with purpose uh, and, and no regrets. Um, the reason that we are starting this next seminar series on a Friday is that I'm going to split up each of these seminar sessions in two. While it is going to be a seven-session run, there are actually going to be 14 podcasts appearing in your podcast feed because I'm going to take apart each session. Every Friday, I'm going to give you a 45-minute to one-hour lecture, a pre-recorded, downloadable lecture uh, about the reading that we're facing that week. Then on Tuesday evening, when we gather here together, we're just going to discuss it. I'm not going to have prepared notes. I will have slides. I will have stuff to pull out. There will be points of discussion, but it's going to be a more inclusive, conversational kind of approach because, quite frankly, the more complex the text, the less time I have to spend with you guys to hear your feedback. As you've seen the last few weeks, when there's a lot of material, I have to race through it such that I can't engage with you meaningfully here during the seminar. So, we're going to have the lecture on a Friday evening, which you'll have time to listen to over the weekend or even at the start of each new week. And then on Tuesday night, the following Tuesday, we'll address that reading here. And we'll probably end up doing about an hour of live chat, maybe a little more. We'll probably end up doing 45 minutes to an hour of pre-recorded lecture. So the idea is to tighten everything up, make it a little more productive, make it a little more focused, and allow us to explore these ideas a little more freely in the seminar setting. All of this, of course, is a work in progress. I absolutely reserve the right to get two weeks into this new thing and cancel this new system and come back to something a little more familiar. Um, we'll see how it works out. This is just this is just a test. I want to continue improving the seminar model uh, to make it as effective and as rewarding for your time and attention as it can possibly be. But don't worry, this is not an excuse to skimp. We're going to dive very, very deep into the pages of, of Pride and Prejudice. I actually caught myself today. I started reading the beginning and... Uh, just sank into it for, for a dozen or more pages. Just absolutely got caught up in, in this extraordinarily precise prose. Nothing at all in Pride and Prejudice is underwritten. But none of it is overwritten to the point of, of intangibility. None of it is overwritten to the point of abstraction. Austin had possibly a peerless talent for, for incalculable precision with her prose. When she takes three sentences to tell you something very simple, it is because that very simple thing has to be communicated exactly. And she does so, of course, beautifully. It is an all-time classic. It is, it's, it's one of the great texts of the Western canon, and I cannot wait to get into it. So that is June 19th, something to look forward to. I can't wait. I can't wait to get started. All right. Oh, and one other quick reminder before we get into our reading tonight. My goodness, my goodness, my goodness. One other quick announcement. A reminder that on Sunday we are going to gather here at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. 2 p.m. Eastern Sunday afternoon to discuss the movie. To discuss adaptation in general and why the first Harry Potter movie as directed by Christopher Columbus is a bad example of the form. We'll get to that on Sunday. We're also going to have an extended Q&A on Sunday. So if we don't have time to reach your questions tonight, or if you are a podcast listener... 
who would like to ask me a question that I can address on Sunday, then by all means do so. Anytime that you are listening to this, near, far, whenever you get to this podcast in the future, by all means, get in touch with me. You can email alistair at storywonk.com or you can find me on Twitter either at storywonk or at paperbullets. Come ask me your questions and I will answer them to the best of my ability. All right. Wow. That's a lot of announcements. Let's get into this, shall we? <laughs> so, with all of that out of the way, ooh, a little white wine tonight. Um, with all of that out of the way, let us turn our attention to that cause that has brought us all here this evening, the concluding movements of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I have a very simple frame that I want to put around tonight's discussion, and it's a frame that we first visited back in our very first week two months ago. What kind of story is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone? Whose story is it? What is the story that drives these events forward? What is the story that keeps us stuck to this book, that keeps us enchanted, that keeps our belief invested and rewards it so fully? There's a lot that we can learn from beginnings, of course, and there's a lot that we can learn from who has control of the story, who has agency, who makes the moves, who has the most at stake. These things can tell us a great deal about who our protagonist is and what they want and thereby what our story really is. But oftentimes you don't know what a story is. You don't know the shape of it. You don't know exactly the arc that it describes until you see how it ends. And I think that the ending of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is simultaneously one of the most frustrating and also one of the most rewarding parts of this book. This is the part of the book that I think can leave the the juvenile reader behind. We're going to talk tonight about a division in J.K. Rowling's approach to her audience. Either purposeful or accidental, though I do think it's far too finely crafted to be entirely accidental. We're going to talk about the ways in which Rowling leaves the childhood realm behind. She has already done so. We have already moved from the realm of the boarding school adventure story into far more serious terrain and returned, hopefully, luckily. But we're going to look tonight at how those two stories dovetail into each other and what exactly that tells us about the conclusion of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Let's get right into it with that, you know, slight warning ahead. <laughs> oh, Allison tells me that the Sunday afternoon seminar will be at 2 a.m. Monday morning in Australia. Allison, you don't have to show up for that. I, I, com I, I give you license to skip that one. By all means, stay in bed. The podcast will be available the day after. <laughs> You're already exhibiting a, a dedication that is above and beyond. All right, let's um, open chapter 17 with Harry. Now uh, arriving in this space, whatever this ill-defined space is, where the Philosopher's Stone is being stored. He enters the room now alone, of course, having, uh, having lost both Ron and Hermione very meaningfully, very purposefully at the end of the last chapter. He is now alone and he confronts Professor Quirrell. Quirrell deftly explains that it was he and not Snape who was trying to kill Harry at the big Quidditch match. Likewise, it was he, not Snape, who let the troll into Hogwarts on Halloween. All the pieces come together rather swiftly here. Um, in the edition that I'm reading, it's it's two pages. By the, by the bottom of the second page of this chapter, the entire conspiracy has been laid out. There's one detail that remains, and we'll get to that at the top of the next page. Um, it's, it's a really well-handled reveal, and I have to say that I like it. I like the reveal here. Um, I enjoy the fact that Rowling plays fair with her clues 
throughout the entirety of the novel. Quirrell is present at every major plot point, even when the text itself seems to skate right over him. Um, he's there in the Leaky Cauldron. He's there prior to the Raid on Gringotts. Um, he's there, of course, in the company of Snape and McGonagall in the wake of the the troll attack, and of course immediately prior to the troll attack, when he interrupts the Halloween feast, he's in the stands at the Quidditch match, he's in the Forbidden Forest, he's in the abandoned classroom. All of the clues, I think, work together fairly well. So, I think that the reveal works. The only way in which the reveal doesn't work for me is that it all stands under the shadow of Snape's malevolence. And we're going to have some explanation offered as to why Snape is the man that he is. We're going to have a certain amount of explanation in this book, and God knows there's a lot of explanation in future books exactly detailing how Snape became this this gnarled and twisted figure. Um, how he quite so, so eloquently uh, took responsibility for all of the suspicion. We're going to talk a little about that if we, uh, if we come back. <laughs> Jay says that she has a hard time not saying Professor Squirrel. You and I both. You and I both, yes. Um, <laughs> oh no, and everyone's comparing time zones. You guys are, are insanely dedicated. <laughs> all right, all right. Keep me focused here, my goodness. It's a, it's a party atmosphere. This is always true. The last night of the seminar always feels like, feels like that last day of term, appropriately enough. Mm. So, Quirrell binds Harry with magical ropes. He turns his attention to the... Mirror of Erised, uh, Dumbledore's contribution to the protective wards and the protective challenges uh, that surround the Philosopher's Stone. And let's let's hold on the Mirror of Erised for just a moment. I said when we reached it in the main text that I like the Mirror unto itself. I do not like its use here in the finale. We saw in last week's reading that each of the wards and the challenges blocking the the, the path to the Philosopher's Stone either reflected a specific a specific talent or a skill or were somehow emblematic of that professor's professional role in the school. So we had Professor Sprout's Devil's Snare or Professor Snape's Potions Test, both of which represent their position in the school, or they represent a personal passion, as in uh, Professor McGonagall's Chess or Hagrid's use of Fluffy, even, that represents a personal passion that drives him. So why does Dumbledore... Possibly the greatest wizard in the world <laughs> choose the mirror of Erised to conceal the stone. I spent a lot of time thinking about this today, and I think that this, as so many things will in the reading ahead tonight, I think this takes us back to the discussion of Voldemort in Chapter 1. Dumbledore could, presumably, being at least a very powerful wizard, if not, you know, categorically the most powerful wizard, he could presumably have put some powerful ward, some, some, some titanic magical injunction around the stone. He could have guarded it in a more explicit way, a more powerful way. If he is as powerful as we're told, and we have no reason to dispute this at this point, then he might simply invest himself in some powerful spell and trust that his skill, his power, is superior. But that's not Dumbledore's way. Why would Dumbledore rely on strength to ward the stone and to prevent Voldemort from returning when he could instead employ a relatively simple and obscure magical device that relies not on Dumbledore's strength, but on Voldemort's hunger to keep the Philosopher's Stone safe. It speaks 
I think once again to our central understanding of Dumbledore, the, the foundation upon which this character has been built, or <laughs> built is perhaps a little too generous, sketched at least. But we understand the foundation of his character very well. It says that the exercise of power is always something to be viewed with suspicion, and implicitly to be avoided if at all possible. Let's take a look here. <clears throat> If I can persuade my screen to share this first slide this evening. Here we are. All right. So this is the problem with the Mirror of Erised. While I like Dumbledore's, you know, judo-like use of the mirror to turn Voldemort's rapacious hunger, his desire against him, I don't actually like that it's the same mirror that we saw earlier, primarily because it's used in a completely different way to completely different effect. We're not actually foreshadowing anything when the Mirror of Erised appears in its own chapter. We're not building on our understanding of that mirror here in the climax. So let's get into the slide here. All Harry could think of doing was to keep Quirrell talking and stop him from concentrating on the mirror. I saw you and Snape in the forest, he blurted out. Yes said Quirrell idly, walking around the mirror to look at the back. He was on to me by that time, trying to find out how far I'd got. He suspected me all along, tried to frighten me, as though he could when I had Lord Voldemort on my side. Quirrell came back out from behind the mirror and stared hungrily into it. I see the stone. I'm presenting it to my master. But where is it? Harry struggled against the ropes binding him, but they didn't give. He had to keep Quirrell from giving his whole attention to the mirror. But Snape always seemed to hate me so much. Oh, he does, said Quirrell, casually. Heavens, yes. He was at Hogwarts with your father, didn't you know? They loathed each other. But he never wanted you dead. But I heard you a few days ago sobbing. I thought Snape was threatening you. For the first time, a spasm of fear flitted across Quirrell's face. Sometimes, he said, I find it hard to follow my master's instructions. He's a great wizard and I am weak. You mean he was there in the classroom with you? Harry gasped. He's with me wherever I go, said Quirrell quietly. I met him when I traveled around the world. A foolish young man I was then, full of ridiculous ideas about good and evil. Lord Voldemort showed me how wrong I was. There is no good and evil. There is only power, and those too weak to seek it. Since then I have served him faithfully, though I have let him down many times. He has had to be very hard on me. Quirrell shivered suddenly. He does not forgive mistakes easily. When I failed to steal the stone from Gringotts, he was most displeased. He punished me, decided he would have to keep a closer watch on me. One of the most striking things I think about this passage, and one of the most interesting things about the speed and the rapidity with which we move through this last section of the book is that we don't get a response from Harry at this, the first direct invocation of Voldemort's name. The confirmation that he has been trapped by the agent of the person who killed his parents isn't treated heavily at all. So look here at the discussion of power. I've been rightly questioned, I think, about my preoccupation with power in the world of Harry Potter. I have been bothered by power ever since that scene in the first chapter. And I think that I have drawn inferences from this text that are certainly more 
directly explored in subsequent books. But we should note that it is all here, here in the first book if you choose to look for it. All the way from McGonagall's description of Dumbledore in that first chapter, and that is, by God, certainly the passage that I've referred to most frequently over these last few weeks. All the way from that description to this flat assertion of Voldemort's views of the subject. Note, though, that this comes to us from Voldemort. It isn't necessarily true that Dumbledore agrees that there's no such thing as good as uh, good and evil, excuse me. Um, even though Dumbledore clearly believes that power is dangerous. Yeah. So it's the use of the mirror, though, I think, that's problematic. Dumbledore will tell Harry in the infirmary, and I'm going to break the timeline just a little because we'll have stuff to discuss when we get to the infirmary. Dumbledore will tell Harry in the infirmary later in the chapter that the necessary trick is to want the stone, but not to want to use the stone. You want to find it, but not wield it. And that's problematic because Quirrell doesn't want to wield it. He explicitly, in the text, wants to find it and give it to his master. Which, I guess we can interpret as using it in the loosest possible sense. But it would seem as though Quirrell's desire, at least with regard to the use of the Philosopher's Stone, is at least as innocent as Harry's is. What is the necessary difference that allows Harry to get the stone? What is the necessary difference that, that allows Harry to force Voldemort into this premature action? Do we have any thoughts on that? Do we have any guesses about that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Pam says that she likes that it was the same mirror. I, I like that it would... <laughs> I'm going to catch that in as many, in as many um, hypotheticals as possible. There is a version of it where I like the fact that it is the mirror. I like the fact that the mirror is presented as a subtle and deceptive device where the other barriers preventing access to the Philosopher's Stone have been much more gross. They've been much more, much more physical. So I like that this is representative of Dumbledore's intellect and of that, that certain sly capacity for deception that he seems to have. It's only that the Mirror of Arizad is presented as a very specific thing in the earlier chapter, and here is presented as something completely different. If you could go back and rewrite that earlier chapter so that one of the things that it does is show you what you want most, but it also has these other traits, these other qualities, or even if, in this moment, Harry had made reference to the legion of family members that he can see standing behind him when he looks in the mirror. That is perhaps the most conspicuous oversight. <laughs> the mirror has only done one useful thing for Harry. It has only effectively done one thing through the, the span of the book, but here it doesn't do that. We're so distracted. And partly I think that may be... You may be able to, to pin the blame for that on, again, the speed with which we move through this final chapter. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Sarah says, even now Dumbledore is preparing Harry. There's so much to be discussed, uh, so much discussion to be had, sorry, uh, about motivations and methods, but spoilers. Yeah, and we'll recast some of this as we move through, but again, we must pay attention to the bounds of this book. You know, how does this story work? Um, because I think it was only during this reading that, that I came to the conclusion that this book actually works rather beautifully, just on its own. Um, we'll get to all of that in due course. Yeah. 
Brooks has a difference in desire for the stone. Harry wants to protect it, whereas Quirrell wants it for the power. I mean, yes. Yes. Um, what bothers me is that there's no reason... When Dumbledore gives the explanation, there's no reason that he couldn't say, oh, the stone would only reveal itself to someone with, with good intentions and with goodness in his heart, or someone who hadn't been tainted by Voldemort. There were a million explanations he could have given. This was literally just, you know, woven together at the last minute. He could have said anything, but instead he says this very specific thing, that it's about wanting to find it, not wield it. Yeah, problematic, problematic. But luckily, <laughs> we, uh, we get to move past this because this is really the only part that doesn't work for me. Well, I mean, there's a big problematic part coming up, but I'm hopefully going to convince you that that's not quite the problem that it seems to be. Um, where are we here? In any case, at this point, Quirrell drags Harry in front of the mirror. The magic does what it is supposed to do. It deposits the stone unseen in Harry's pocket. He lies to Quirrell, who is is fraying at the edges rather beautifully. Um, but the time has come for our final confrontation. And this is it. Harry felt as if Devil's Snare was rooting him to the spot. He couldn't move a muscle. Petrified, he watched as Quirrell reached up and began to unwrap his turban. What was going on? The turban fell away. Quirrell's head looked strangely small without it. Then he turned slowly on the spot. Harry would have screamed, but he couldn't make a sound. Where there should have been a back to Quirrell's head... There was a face, the most terrible face Harry had ever seen. It was chalk white, with glaring red eyes and slits for nostrils, like a snake. Harry Potter, it whispered. Harry tried to take a step backwards, but his legs wouldn't move. See what I have become, the face said. Mere shadow and vapor. I have form only when I can share another's body but there have always been those willing to let me into their hearts and minds. Unicorn blood has strengthened me these past weeks. You saw faithful Quirrell drinking it for me in the forest. And once I have the elixir of life, I will be able to create a body of my own. Now, why don't you give me that stone in your pocket? So he knew. The feeling suddenly surged back into Harry's legs. He stumbled backward. Don't be a fool, snarled the face. Better save your own life and join me, or you'll meet the same end as your parents. They died begging me for mercy. Liar, Harry shouted suddenly. Quirrell was walking backward at him so that Voldemort could still see him. The evil face was now smiling. How touching, it hissed. I always value bravery. Yes, boy, your parents were brave. I killed your father first, but he put up a courageous fight. But your mother needn't have died. She was trying to protect you. Now give me the stone, unless you want her to have died in vain. Never! <laughs> I love the absurdity of the back of Quirrell's head ominously approaching Harry as Quirrell walks backward. There is... There is a real grotesquerie to that. There is something otherworldly and disconcerting about that image, and I really rather like it. So much of the application of magic that we see in Harry Potter stems from traditional sources. You know, it, it ties back to 
Arthurian myth and fairy tales and Victorian myths. You know, it ties back to this older idea of, of Merlin the wizard figure. But this is something altogether more disturbing. It's really quite creepy. And it may seem odd, but of all the specific details we're offered here, the beat that stands out for me, obsessive about certain things as I am, is that line in the penultimate paragraph. I always value bravery. Bravery is a Gryffindor trait. Bravery is the Gryffindor trait. And Gryffindors are supposed to oppose the pursuit of personal power at any cost. Is Voldemort here simply taunting Harry with something he knows is important to the boy's sense of identity, sense of his place in Hogwarts and in the world in general? Or is there something more at stake here? Is this our first indication, looking at this from a series-long perspective, is this our first indication that the divisions between the houses are more fluid, flexible, imprecise than we have been led to believe in this, the first volume? Let's talk a little about the reveal and of what we make of Professor Quirrell. Because, as I said earlier, while I quite enjoy the reveal, Quirrell has me perplexed. The second face under the turban reveal is a powerful one. It's a strong moment. And while we may at this point be suspicious of Quirrell, the very careful reader may have noted Quirrell's presence at inopportune moments throughout the story, and may be suspicious of Quirrell. The exact nature of the reveal, I think, would catch anyone by surprise, particularly since we have that interesting false note in the Forbidden Forest about the cloaked and shrouded figure creeping across the forest floor. And it's perhaps a little difficult to understand exactly why Quirrell was choosing to move in exactly that fashion, but that perhaps is a point of speculation for another time. Um, when I think about Quirrell as a representative character, when I think about Quirrell as, as a literary device within the span of this novel, there really are only two prominent details. His, what for want of a better word might be called his exoticism, and his position at Hogwarts. On the one hand, we have his turban, his, his world travels. He is presented as a more worldly, exotic, unorthodox figure, even among the company of wizards. And it should be noted, too, that, that turbans are not necessarily... Uh, how can I put this? To a society that is obsessed with medievalism and antiquity, as the wizarding society is, turbans are not necessarily as emblematic of you know, Southeast Asia as they would be to us. Several hundred years ago, turbans were a much more common fixture, you know, not just through the far and near Easts, but all the way throughout Europe. It was not uncommon at certain points leading up to the Renaissance for noblemen in Western Europe to wear turbans habitually. But for all of that, that doesn't seem to be the reference point. It doesn't seem to be a reference to medievalism. It doesn't seem to be a reference to antiquity. In quite the way that we've seen so many of those references made throughout the course of the book, it seems to speak instead to exoticism. And we have this line here from Quirrell saying that he ran into Voldemort when he was traveling the world with a head full of foolish ideas. The other thing we have to consider when we're thinking about Quirrell, particularly when we're thinking about his relationship with Voldemort and his position as the primary antagonist in this story, is his professional position at Hogwarts. 
He is the professor of defense against the dark arts. And that seems, that seems too specific, too purposeful to be accidental, but it also isn't delivered to us in a terribly fully developed way. It is possible, it is tempting to draw some kind of conclusion that says that, you know, <laughs> beware he who stares into the abyss, for the abyss stares also back into you, you know. We get some, some, some butchered Nietzsche quote here. Um, saying that defense against the dark arts requires one to study the dark arts, and studying the dark arts is enough in a, in a Lovecraftian sense to fracture the mind and to, to allow the soul to be seduced into temptations of power. Po possibly. I mean, possibly. We just don't get enough. And if there's a missed opportunity looking at this book from a literary perspective, I feel as though Quirrell may be it. We miss out on so many soft, resonant details as we move through this last chapter simply because events move so quickly. Two pages and we get our Voldemort revealed. Two more pages and he actually turns on Harry. Two more pages and it's done and it's over and we'll, we'll, we don't have to worry about him again. It's very fast. Let me catch up with you all here. Yes. <laughs> oh, Jay says, Quirrell was doing the Slytherin Slither. Yes, I think there's perhaps some, some horrible... Uh, <laughs> horrible moonwalking thing. Yes. Danielle asks, does Voldemort think his own actions are brave, that his actions of taking power are brave? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when Quirrell talks about power, he says that there is power out there and those who are too weak to pursue it. That would certainly imply a certain lack of... of when we talk about weakness in Harry Potter, we're usually talking about a weakness of moral fiber. We're talking about a weakness of, of courage and certitude, you know? So certainly we could see we could see in that relationship exactly that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. But that would suggest that that, you know, <laughs> we've seen that bravery is a Gryffindor trait. Ambition and audacity are Slytherin traits. But there is no clean dividing line between them. And uh, let's let's put a pin in that until we, we close out the discussion of what kind of story this is. Because I think we're going to see something here that, uh, that, that is going to cast some illumination on at least some of these outstanding questions. Great. All right. Um, <clears throat> where are we here? Quirrell grabs Harry, who is struck with the blinding pain that we have seen before. But uh, Quirrell reacts even more powerfully. His fingers blister as he holds Harry. Voldemort orders him to kill Harry, and Harry grabs Quirrell's face, purposefully burning him, trying to prevent him from casting the curse. The intensity builds, finally, until Harry falls into darkness, hearing Voldemort crying for his death and one other voice calling his name. And that, in a sense, is our climax. That, in a sense, is the conclusion of this epic narrative. Harry just grabs a guy's face and then falls unconscious. And when he comes to, the day is saved and justice is restored and all is well with the world. Is it dissatisfying, then, that in this final confrontation, Harry doesn't really accomplish anything? Is it dissatisfying that here, you know, we, we've come through all of these great events and here in the final reckoning, Harry gets the stone by luck, or at least by Dumbledore's foresight, he fends off Quirrell by luck. He's rescued by luck. Is that satisfying? Is that rewarding after all we've come through? Well, 
to me, it's a clear sign that despite what we may see here, this isn't the climax of our story. Harry achieved all that he had to achieve when he crossed that last threshold, when he overcame the obstacles that were keeping him from the Philosopher's Stone. He made it here, and that was all that was required of him, or I guess at least all that could be expected from him. The one thing that we didn't talk about last week, we spent so much time last week talking about thresholds and liminality. We talked about passing barriers, passing through doorways. The one thing that we didn't talk about was what is on the other side of the doorway? When you pass a threshold, what's there? Where are you at that point? And the answer, it seems to me at least, is that Harry is in a different kind of story. He's in a different kind of world. The... <laughs> almost tempted to use the phrase Chamber of Secrets there, but uh, I'll, I'll resist that for now. The, um, the, the resting place of the Philosopher's Stone is simply not a part of Harry's experience thus far. Remember last week when we talked about the Forbidden Forest. The Forbidden Forest is to Hogwarts as Hogwarts is to the Muggle world. You know, the Forbidden Forest is another tier entirely of, of magic, of supernatural activity and occupation. Well, this place, the hiding place of the Philosopher's Stone, is just the same. It exists on another tier. Harry has transgressed, he has moved through the threshold to a darker, more adult story. This is the part of the book where an evil wizard <laughs> occupying the back of a guy's head is screaming, kill him, lest we forget, you know? The tone here is very different. The tone here is much darker. And in this story, Harry cannot be expected to take action. He cannot be expected to win. This isn't where he belongs. This isn't, in a very fundamental and functional sense, his story. Or at least not yet. Simply by being there, he gets the stone. He goads Voldemort into revealing himself. He simply is. Harry is. Harry endures. Simply by being who he is, he wards off Quirrell for long enough for Dumbledore to arrive and to save him. And that's okay, because Harry's still a child. Harry hasn't yet grown into his full agency. When Dumbledore saves him, and brings him back to his own world, brings him back to his own story, when he returns Harry to the safe confines of those rules that we discussed at great length last week and the week before, Dumbledore is restoring justice. He is exercising agency in a story that, if not his, is at least on his level. Harry will face Voldemort in the future. Dumbledore says as much when we get to the infirmary. But this isn't the time. This is not Harry's victory. Harry's victory will come in due course. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Sarah says, what is on the other side of the doorway? The saddest Harry Potter question ever. Hashtag spoilers. Yes, yes, yes. E.R. Lamp says it's worth remembering, too, that the book doesn't even open with Harry. It opens with other people discussing him. Yes, it does. Adults discussing him, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Oh, and we're talking about some development of Voldemort's character in the in the uh, in the subsequent books. Yes, yes. All right. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, we'll talk a little more about this this uh, this disconjunction between these two stories in just a moment. Um, in the meantime, though, Harry awakes in the infirmary. Dumbledore is there to fill him in on all that he has missed. Harry's celebrity status is restored. Um, he is now perhaps even more famous than he was when he was not just the boy who lived, but also the star seeker on the Gryffindor Quidditch team. This is, to not an incidental point, the restoration of Harry's celebrity not only remedies the injustice from earlier, you know, Harry is stripped of his celebrity, or at least of the positive aspects of his celebrity, because he tried to do something good, because he tried to help a friend and protect an animal. It was unjust that he was stripped of those qualities, of that recognition, of that place in his personal society. So this is a restoration of justice in more than one sense. Quirrell didn't get his hands on the stone, we're told, and it is now destroyed. And there's an interesting detail, it's a fleeting detail here, which I think offers some support for the idea that Harry has been dragged back, not just across the threshold from the, the, the cave of, 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 uh, of protection here, back into Hogwarts, he has been dragged bodily across a genre boundary. He's now safe once more in the, board, uh, in the boarding school adventure. This is it. When Harry asks if Dumbledore has received Hermione's owl, and that's why he returned to Hogwarts, Dumbledore says immediately, no, that's not what happened. I figured it out on my own. Why would we take the time to pay attention to that one fine detail when there are so many other pressing concerns? Like, did Hermione and Ron make it out okay? Is Professor Quirrell dead? We don't get an answer to that. I think it's strongly implied that Quirrell is dead, and, you know, well, I guess I can spoil that much. We learn from future books that, in fact, he is dead, but it is left ambiguous here in the moment. Instead, we take this opportunity to address the communication issue which has bedeviled them. So why should we take this time? Dumbledore has already implied, thanks to his personal account of, of Harry fighting Quirrell, that he himself was present in the chamber at the time, that he witnessed this fight. And we'll learn in just a few moments that, in fact, yes, Dumbledore was the one who pulled Harry out. So there's no way that Hermione's owl could have reached Dumbledore in time. In fact, considering the time frame, there's a very strong argument that Hermione didn't even get a chance to send an owl. So why ask the question? Why take the time to address it? I think it is because capital A authority has now been restored. The benevolent presence of the parent, the mentor, the teacher, has now been returned to the world. There was a suspension there for a moment. The normal rules did not apply. When Dumbledore was sent away and, and events spiraled into crisis, the normal rules didn't apply, but now they do. Authority has been restored. Justice has been restored. The world is safe again. And Hermione, by virtue of existing within that world, couldn't make that happen. She doesn't have the power to make that happen. Harry doesn't have the power to make that happen, even by proxy. We emphasize instead that it is Dumbledore in his full authority, in his, 
his double-sided full authority on on the one hand as as headmaster of Hogwarts, you know, his his temporal and specific authority, and on the other as representative mentor, as parent figure for Harry and for the other children in Hogwarts. In both senses, his authority has now returned. He is back, and Harry's adolescent adventure is being recontextualized once more. And this isn't the first time that it's happened. We've seen this happen before. Every time that Harry ventures too far and we return to the boarding school adventure story, that is what is happening. Authority is being re-exerted and Harry comes back. That is what has happened here. I think. <laughs> that would be my argument. Oh, there's another beat here too. Uh, when Dumbledore talks about Nicholas Flamel and his wife finally dying. And this is beautiful. I should have... I, I, I didn't... Um, I'm just double-checking that I didn't pull this out on the slide. I don't think that I did. I didn't. Damn. Go and read very carefully that little passage there um, when Dumbledore accounts for the the imminent death of Nicholas Flamel and his wife, and he says that uh, when you reach that great age, death may even be looked forward to. And Harry doesn't get it. Harry clearly, from the text, doesn't understand what, what Dumbledore is saying. But we do. And by we, I'm not even talking about the juvenile readers of this book. I'm not talking about the children and the adolescents for whom this book is primarily intended. They don't understand. <laughs> you must have a sense of your own mortality before the mortality of others can, particularly the abstract mortality of others. Harry's never met Nicholas Flamel. He doesn't care about Nicholas Flamel personally. So he sees this as being a abstract, well, why would you want to die? I don't understand. But Dumbledore understands. And we, the adults, understand. And this is proof, I think, of this layering of narrative here. More on that in just a moment. Um, so after giving a brief account of Voldemort's fate and warning of his possible return in a subsequent book, um, Harry asks for some answers. I have a... Uh, yeah, I have the slide here. Let's, let's take a quick look here. Um... Yeah, Danielle said, did Dumbledore want Harry to face Voldemort? Is that why he taught him about the mirror? It's an interesting question. No, I think not. The mirror wouldn't even be necessarily the most, um, the most damning piece of evidence. The damning piece of evidence there would be the invisibility cloak. Um, did Dumbledore want him to face Voldemort? Well, again, because we moved through this so quickly, it isn't at all clear what Dumbledore's understanding of the situation was. Dumbledore clearly wanted Harry to have a certain amount of agency. That's why he gave him the invisibility cloak. Dumbledore obviously believes that a certain amount of rebellion is good for a child. That is the kind of attitude that you want your benevolent authority figure to have. But at the same time, he clearly didn't believe or understand or realize that Voldemort was present in Hogwarts, either directly or by proxy. He clearly didn't realize that this was quite as dire a circumstance as it turned out to be. Otherwise, it's difficult to believe that he would have been tricked by the letter summoning him to the Ministry of Magic. Um, if you wanted to argue that Dumbledore orchestrated things, such that Harry faced Voldemort down, 
I think there's enough evidence in the book that, that could support that reading. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. And Sarah pulls out, yeah, one of the one of the lines in that section when, when Dumbledore was talking about death. To the well-organized mind, death is but another great adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and we're, we're talking a little here on Twitter in particular about the... Um, about the ways in which Harry is tested and the ways in which Dumbledore tests Harry in the subsequent books. And what we must we must strive to remember always is that Harry is not a static figure. This is, in large part, a coming-of-age tale uh, when, when you look at the series as a whole. And therefore, that constant challenging is, is different every time it occurs. Well, well... <laughs> I can't say a lot, <laughs> a lot more about that without spoiling. But I should say, perhaps this is the best time to do it. We will be returning to a chamber, uh, to the Chamber of Secrets. We will we will get to that. Um, probably won't be until next spring, but we will definitely cover that here in the Storywong Seminar. Yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> All right. Um, let me see what's here in the YouTube chat. Yes. Robbie says that she's not sure of JKR's intention. Intention in what regard? Oh, is this about Dumbledore? Uh, about uh, Dumbledore's plans? Yes, yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's pick up here. Oh, right. So we have the slide here, the uh, the account of Voldemort's fate and the warning of the possible return, and then we get this. Harry nodded, but stopped quickly because it made his head hurt. Then he said, Sir, there are some things I'd like to know, if you can tell me. Things I want to know the truth about. The truth, Dumbledore sighed. It is a beautiful and terrible thing, and should therefore be treated with great caution. However, I shall answer your questions, unless I have a very good reason not to, in which case I beg you'll forgive me. I shall not, of course, lie. Well, Voldemort said that he only killed my mother because she tried to stop him from killing me. But why would he want to kill me in the first place? Dumbledore sighed very deeply this time. Alas, the first thing you ask me, I cannot tell you. Not today, not now. You will know one day. Put it from your mind for now, Harry. When you are older, I know you hate to hear this. When you are ready... You will know. And Harry knew it would be no good to argue. But why couldn't Quirrell touch me? Your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. It is in your very skin. Quirrell, full of hatred, greed, and ambition, sharing his soul with Voldemort, could not touch you for this reason. It was agony to touch a person marked by something so good. Dumbledore now became very interested in a bird out on the windowsill, which gave Harry time to dry his eyes on the sheet. When he found his voice again, Harry said, And the invisibility cloak? Do you know who sent it to me? 
Ah, your father happened to leave it in my possession, and I thought you might like it. Dumbledore's eyes twinkled. Useful things. Your father used it mainly for sneaking off to the kitchens to steal food when he was here. It is a mark, I think, of the text's sophistication that Dumbledore can still inhabit these two worlds. He gives Harry the answers that Harry can handle, and thereby gives the juvenile reader the answers that he or she can handle. But for those of us with more adult eyes, we can see more here than is being said outright. The most notable thing, of course, within the span of this book, is the incomplete account. The explanation of Quirrell's inability to touch Harry may be true to a greater or lesser degree, but it doesn't account for the blazing pain that Harry encounters in Voldemort's presence. There is clearly, even here, even now, more at work than is being said outright. Of course, we also have here the framing of Harry's desire to understand. We have this wonderful moment when, when Dumbledore outright says, this isn't your story yet. Be cool. Relax. You'll get there. But you're not there yet. It's a wonderfully sophisticated exploration, I think. And we also see so much presence and subtlety in Dumbledore that is so easy to miss in his... Well, <laughs> is easy to miss slash entirely absent from many of his depictions in the pages of this book. That tiny moment when he, quote, became very interested in a bird out on the windowsill, thereby giving Harry the reprieve to dry his eyes. He doesn't want to embarrass this, this gawky adolescent boy. But he also wants the conversation to be done. He also doesn't want, I think, I genuinely believe, to address the other half of it. It's an interesting conversation. And, and I, I should say that, that while... <laughs> well, I think there is something textual happening here. And while clearly there are implications to this conversation that will only become clear in the subsequent volumes, within the span of this book... I think it gives exactly the answer that Harry, the hero of the boarding school adventure, needs. Why were you saved? Well, because you ventured into a realm that you weren't ready for. But luckily, your mother loved you. <laughs> Is that not the story of growing up? You stumbled. You ended up in way, way over your head. But luckily, the unseen benign influence of the people who love you protected you, and drew you back. Both his mother, acting through love, of course, and Dumbledore acting, well, acting a little more physically. It's a powerful moment, and it is rewarding in the moment. I think that for the children in the audience, you know, those, those children who read this, who don't perhaps have a sense, have a different perspective on this, I think it works perfectly well. I think it's completely rewarding. But for the adult reader, there is still this lingering sense that Harry ended up somewhere he shouldn't be. He ended up in the wrong kind of story. Yeah. <laughs> McGigglequt says, Drives me nuts that Dumbles doesn't just tell Harry everything he knows. Non-communication is the consistent thwart throughout the series. Yeah. Yeah, I can see why. I can see why. Yes.
<laughs> and Lee is trying to explain Outlander to her mother-in-law. Good luck with that, my god. Yes. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's pick up the pace a little. We'll burn through the rest of this chapter, and then we will get to some Q&A. If you guys have any burning questions that consume you, uh... We'll conclude Dumbledore's visit with the explanation about the mirror, which we've already covered, of course, and then Ron and Hermione show up, followed by Hagrid. We're, we're caught up to date on events at Hogwarts, and these scenes are touching, they are rewarding, but there isn't a great deal of depth to them. Um, we learn the results of the last Quidditch match and of Slytherin's victory in the House Cup, uh, and we also set the stage for our end-of-year feast. In the Great Hall, we are firmly back in the boarding school adventure story. When, when Harry is in the infirmary, he is still in this liminal state. He moves back by degrees. And we're going to see a lot of regression through the closing moments of this book. But he moves back by degrees. When, ha when Hermione and Ron come to visit him, he moves back. When Hagrid comes to visit him, Hagrid, of course, being this, this profound grounding influence on the entire story, he moves back a little. By the time we get to the Great Hall, he is back in the boarding school adventure. He is so back in the boarding school adventure, by the way, that he takes the time out of the narrative to express disgust at Malfoy and the other Slytherin kids that they have won the House Cup. Harry just faced down an unknowable, possibly immortal evil that murdered his parents in cold blood. And here, three pages, four pages later, he is once again concerned with the House Cup, as he should be. He has been forcibly, by Dumbledore, reinserted into the frame of this adolescent story, this children's book. Yeah. <laughs> so we move through here. Um, we move through the events, and, and we arrive, of course, at the great crowning moment uh, of the story. Dumbledore's staggeringly unjust, staggeringly self-indulgent, uh, staggeringly indefensible overturning of the entire year's achievements by awarding Gryffindor 170 points, enough to take the House Cup back from Slytherin. And note to the order in which those points are handed out, first to Ron for playing excellent chess, then to Hermione for using logic, it's not even clear exactly. I think it's referring to the potions test. Of course, you would expect it to, but it's a little more nebulous than that. Then for uh, Harry, Harry gets 60 points awarded for, quote, pure nerve and outstanding courage, bravery on top of bravery for the Gryffindor kids, and Neville, who gets points explicitly for bravery. The thing that I love about this even more, as if this wasn't this startling moment of, of, of injustice, is that somehow the Gryffindor kids are still painted as the underdogs. <laughs> Despite having Harry, you know, the premier student at Hogwarts on their side, despite having led the House Cup for much of the year until Harry and Hermione blew it, despite those things, Gryffindor is still represented as the underdog, because Slytherin has held the title for seven years straight. It's so good. <laughs> so, what is the problem here? Why doesn't this work? Well, it doesn't work because it feels unjust, because we, I think, from an adult perspective, look at this and say, what the hell? What the hell? The Slytherin kids earned those points fair and square. And never mind that. If we accept that Slytherin are evil and should be, you know, cast aside regardless, 
the Hufflepuff kids, the Ravenclaw kids, we're told explicitly in the text that Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw are just so thrilled that someone beat Slytherin that they join in the cheers. They join in the party here. We're reminded once again that at least within the frame of this book, Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw are just also ants. They're just standing on the sidelines cheering on this battle between good and evil. Here's the trick. From the adult perspective, from the perspective of the kind of adult fantasy story that we have been dipping into through the series, through, through the, the, the book, this scene leaves a bad taste in the mouth. From the point of view of Harry's story, though, it is just, and it is right. This is the reward that he gets for completing all of his challenges. When he crossed all of those thresholds, when he overcame all those difficult challenges, when he united his friends and then pushed on without them, when he faced the great evil alone, he earned this reward. The problem is, structurally speaking, that those two events were broken up by the introduction of this other, darker story. That said, it's still difficult. It's still difficult to reconcile it. It still feels like a slap in the face for, for our adult sense of fair play and justice. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Neville is the only, uh, the only exception to that. Neville absolutely deserves the points, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Janine says, I literally don't care how unjust it may be. I burst into tears of joy and pride every time Neville gets those damn points. Yes. Yeah, and, and to do that too, to, to, I do enjoy that that is the point that we land on and that it is Neville who wins the House Cup because this is literally, I think, maybe the only time in the entire book that Harry's exceptionalism doesn't save the day, you know? That, that when there is a test, when there is a trial, when he is particularly, you know, pitted against Slytherin, it is unusual for anyone else to, to accomplish something, to achieve something great. And for it to be Neville, for it to be the simple strength of Neville's character. It is a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. McGiggle Cutie says, if Dumbles had given the points prior to the final feast, it would have been better. Yes. This is, this is just... Those Slytherin kids had a bad day, you know? Here's the other thing. Had there been... Had there been some kind of reciprocity, had there been some, you know, sin committed by the Slytherin kids, if Malfoy had been caught out in some terrible sin, if he had broken the rules, the, uh, this is, you know, within the frame of the boarding school adventure story, if Malfoy had broken the rules and he had lost points such that the points awarded to Gryffindor allowed them to win, I even feel like that would be a little more just. But none of those kids have done anything wrong. They just had it taken away from them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then, with our business concluded, and we really do move through this with enormous rapidity, we conclude the school year with exam results and deftly, briefly wish farewell to Hogwarts. This is our last slide here. And suddenly, their wardrobes were empty. Their trunks were packed. Neville's toad was found lurking in a corner of the toilets. Notes were handed out to all students, warning them not to use magic over the holidays. I always hope they'll forget to give us these, said Fred Weasley sadly. Hagrid was there to take them down to the fleet of boats that sailed across the lake. 
They were boarding the Hogwarts Express, talking and laughing as the countryside became greener and tidier, eating Bertie Bott's every flavor beans as they sped past muggle towns, pulling off their wizard robes and putting on jackets and coats, pulling into platform nine and three quarters at King's Cross Station. There's a great passage. An absolutely great passage. I love the way that the transitions that we charted so carefully, the transitions that took so long when we were going to Hogwarts, are now undone with such precision. They're unwound. They're unspooled. It is, it is dexterous, nimble stuff. And speaks eloquently of the return to the mundane world in more than a simple, a simple physical sense. We come back across the lake, back along the path, back onto the train. This atmosphere of community, of conviviality, this is in a very real sense what Harry sought. And in a very real sense, this is, this is Harry's reward in a more, <laughs> in, in, in a less rule-oriented and more, you know, um, more meaningful sense. This is what he gets. Finally, back on platform nine and three quarters, Harry is returned to the dubiously loving embrace of the Dursleys, though note the exchanges here. He's no longer alone, he's no longer intimidated, and he's no longer powerless. And I'm not talking about his ability to cast spells, of course, but rather about his, his faith in himself, his knowledge of himself, and his sense of community. There is a place that he belongs, and he found there... Well, he found their family, both a, a family of, of happy convenience in Hermione and Ron, and in the Weasleys in general, but also, of course, trace of his family, first through the mirror, and then secondly, of course, through this wonderful photo album that Hagrid gives him. And that is where we conclude, with Harry coyly saying that, uh, of course, the Dursleys don't know that he's not allowed to use magic over the holidays. Things are going to be very different. But they're going to be very different in the same place, with the same people, with the same relationships. We have transited across this entire book and wound up back where we began. So what is the story of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone? <laughs> well, it's two stories. That's the inevitable conclusion that we have to come to. There are two stories coexisting here. One is the contained, the approachable, the exciting and ebullient boarding school adventure. The other is the darker, much more adult, much more dangerous, and much more nuanced story of Voldemort. That is where we begin. We begin with the consequences of the Voldemort story. But that is not where we end. We dip into the Voldemort story as we move through the book. We have that, that, that moment at the beginning when we begin to see the ramifications. And even before we know, you know, the exact nature of those horrible events, we see the implication of it. We see Harry's fame. And Harry's fame is, of course, a manifestation, at least in part, of the, the gratitude, the relief, <laughs> the celebratory atmosphere that unites all wizards all over the country. The Forbidden Forest 
is a part of the Voldemort story. Certainly the, the chamber where the Philosopher's Stone is kept is a part of the Voldemort story. The boarding school story is, is, is house points and, and Quidditch and, and every flavor jelly beans and learning to cast spells with your friends and heroic adventures and all of this stuff. That is the boarding school adventure. That is the adolescent adventure. The Voldemort story is darkness and it's death and it's mortality and it's, it's a, a eucatastrophic salvation that in the end, even this moment of, of dizzying, almost book-breaking audacity, even the best possible ending that we could hope for, the ending that we get, all it does is forestall the inevitable. And even then, Dumbledore is not telling the truth. He's not telling the whole story. We know that this is not the end. We know that that story is still waiting out there. We know that. As adults, we know that. But that's all right. It's okay that there's this division. And it's okay that Harry doesn't understand the scope of the story because Harry is an adolescent. He's safe in the world. And he has survived dipping his toes into the other world. And that is what adolescence is about. He has crossed lines, both purposefully and accidentally. He has found himself caught up in things beyond his control, beyond his ability to, to, to cope with, to understand even. He has ended up way, way out of his depth, and he has been brought back. He has been kept safe. He has learned. He will continue to learn, continue to mature. He'll grow older and bolder and wiser. He'll grow stronger and he'll grow smarter and he'll continue to push against the constraints of that adolescent world. And as he pushes against those boundaries, the adult world will find cracks. It will seep in with its darker hue, with its greater demand. But that's all right. <laughs> that's, that is what happens. That is the process of growing up. Harry has survived his first skirmish with the Darker World, and the Darker World is not the Dursleys. This is not the, the mundane suffering of, of an unloved boy. That is a, a terrible, quiet tragedy. But that is not the challenge that will face Harry in his life. That is not the challenge that will face us in our lives. J.K. Rowling manages to masterfully weave these two stories together, and masterful is the word. When we get these hints, when there are these subtle echoes, these subtle moments of resonance right there at the end of the book, when we take time out to ask about Hermione's owl, when we take time out to comment on the fact that the death of Nicholas Flamel maybe isn't the tragedy that Harry, seems, uh, that Harry believes it to be in his naive, unformed state, when we take those moments, we are emphasizing that there are two stories at play here. But here's the thing. These two stories are not Harry Potter the series and Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Because even if this book concluded here, even if this series, excuse me, concluded here, even if that last page were the last glimpse of Harry Potter that we ever had, both of those stories would work. I think this book tells us something very sophisticated about growing up, about childhood rebellion, about the misadventures that we will all 
be hurled into. It tells us that we'll be safe until we're ready to not be safe. It tells us that we'll learn and that we'll grow and we'll grow wiser, sometimes in ugly and difficult ways. And it works. For me, at least, it works. The only thing I think that makes me hesitate about this finale is the opening of the book. And as we all know by now, I love me some chapter one. I'm crazy about that first chapter. I am crazy about the McGonagall and, and Hagrid and Dumbledore stuff. I'm not sure what it does. Reframing the story like that, beginning there, I'm not sure what it does. And I'm not sure that there's a better way. I'm not sure that there is a way to reconcile those two stories such that they both end as satisfyingly, as fully, as richly as they do. I think it is very tempting to look at this book as the first of an ongoing series. It is very tempting to look at this as an imperfect realization of what will become vibrant and, and compelling later. But I think that that is too flat an understanding of this book. Yes, we're not going to see the Harry that we come to see later. We're not going to see the Hermione or the Ron or the relationships or the world that we're going to see later. This is a much simpler place. But I think that that is purposeful. In a very real sense, this is the first step on a much longer journey. And I gotta tell you, <laughs> for me it really works. Let's see what you guys have to say about all this as I take a sip of wine to freshen up here. Mm. All right. Lee says, I still can't believe they sent him back to those horrible people. Yeah. But this is the thing, right? What has changed here cannot be the outside world. Harry cannot be simply removed. This, for me, is possibly, structurally speaking, this, for me, is possibly the most brilliant thing that J.K. Rowling does. Having Harry return to the Dursleys forces Harry to meaningfully change. This is not a blue fairy that, that descends in the night, waves her magical wand, and everything is fine. In order to address the most meaningful conflicts in his life, Harry has to be there. He has to be present. He has to confront them. There are no simple solutions. There is only growth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've got a lot of people talking about, uh, yes. Got a lot of people talking about where all this goes, of course. Yes, Earlamp asks, is the final chapter of the series the conclusion to the first chapter, maybe? And yes, there is a there is a um people like to overstate exactly how structurally rich and self-referential this series is. Um I don't think you have to look at it in in you don't have to look at it with the desire to architect some amazing and dizzying piece of structural geometry um, in order to recognize that, yes, there are resonances and there are echoes. And that is something that J.K. Rowling excels at as an author, is following through, simply following through with the decisions that her characters make, with the consequences of those actions. So, yes. Yes, uh, Sarah is alluding here in the Twitter chat to... Uh, 
<laughs> oh, Janine asked, do we know if Her Majesty JK knew it would be a series at this point? And Sarah replied, legend says she plotted out all seven books, but there's no way to be sure. Yeah, that, that is basically that is basically what we're discussing. Um, the degree to which she had it planned out, I think, is actually widely irrelevant. Um, the degree to which something is planned out is always irrelevant in storytelling. Because the only thing that you can judge is what is there at the end. <laughs> the intent doesn't matter at all, you know? That's a conversation perhaps for another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Robbie says here in the YouTube chat, I admit that having seen four movies before reading this book and having friends who wrote fanfic that when I read this, I went, wow, this is really a kiddie book. I think you're right. And I, I genuinely think that that is its triumph. It's so easy, I think, particularly now, of course, and it's easier in part because J.K. Rowling blazed this trail because she changed the face of YA in a very meaningful way. It's so easy to look at stories that, that hurl our young protagonists into dystopias, you know, that, that hurl them into the most adverse of circumstances and force them to behave like adults, force them to confront adult issues, adult consequences. For me, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone reads more like, more like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, more like an actual children's book that has things to say about real adult concerns, but it is resolutely a children's book. And we have moved away from that in our understanding and our appreciation for YA fiction. And it's wonderful that through the series, she doesn't limit herself to writing children's books. These books are going to become startlingly sophisticated. She understands, even here in this first book, that writing for children does not mean writing something simple. It doesn't mean writing something trite. It doesn't mean writing something hollow. That quirrell reveal in the last chapter, that is a reveal that is worthy of any adult book on the shelf for me. As, as a piece of story structuring, that is beautifully done. So I, I would say, yes, for me at least, what is wonderful about this book is that it is a great children's book. And I mean that as the highest possible price. Far more than, than just, you know, this is a YA series that hasn't quite matured yet, that hasn't quite reached its potential yet. Yeah. Yeah. Janine asks, if we never got the subsequent books, would this story be different? And I genuinely don't think it does. I think this is the realization that I came to today. That only while preparing this seminar, I realized that this book really does work on its own. And that had always been my concern. That had always been my, my perspective on this book was, okay, we have to look at it as the first volume. You know, we have to look at it as a, as a book unto itself. But of course, we understand that these relationships aren't there yet. These characters aren't there yet. This world isn't developed yet. This is not the Harry Potter that we're going to get by the time we hit, you know, Azkaban or, or, or Order of the Phoenix, you know. That's real Harry Potter. This is, this is proto-Potter. But reading it today, I, I really genuinely think that that's not true. I genuinely believe that while it will be more sophisticated, while it will be more developed, this is a full and complete story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, which makes, of course, the movie adaptation all the more depressing, but we will talk about that on Sunday. Yeah.
Yeah. Oh, and Robbie says, yes, exactly, Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe, yes, that it was written at a kid's level, not that the deeper meaning wasn't there, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and of course, you know, we... we... <sighs> it is perhaps not the time for a segue into the discussion of, of the problems with, with genre in, in, in literature, but... Um, it is ridiculous that we should consider children's literature to be a genre any more than we should consider adult literature to be a genre or women's literature to be a genre. The audience that you are writing for says nothing about the contents of your book whatsoever. Nothing at all. There are great and complex and subtle children's novels and there are simplistic and facile children's novels. There are great and substantial and complex adult novels and there are shallow and facile adult novels too. It's all about understanding your audience and writing to that experience. Yeah. Oh, Andrea says, for those of us who arrived late, what is happening on Sunday? I was just about to get to that. You know, I have a slide for exactly this circumstance, Andrea. Let me see here. Um, on Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, movie discussion and Q&A. I will be talking about why the adaptation of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is terrible. Um, <laughs> not just as a movie as a movie as a piece of 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 filmed entertainment it is passable enough but as a story it really stumbles at the first hurdle yeah yeah katie asks am i going to be run out of town if i and my kids enjoy the movie no absolutely not absolutely not the movie is enormously enjoyable for those of us who have read the book, for those of us who have had this experience, or for if, if you happen to have kids who, who have absorbed Harry Potter by osmosis, um, who just, they know every detail of this world without ever picking up a book. Um, if you are familiar with the world and you like that first movie, then all power to you, all power to you. I enjoy the, the spectacle of sitting down to watch the movie. Uh, my objections are a little more academic and a little more uh, a little more narratively focused. It, it structurally fails to understand what an adaptation is. Never mind, fails to to properly commit and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Allison says here on on the the Twitter stream. I read a lot of YA fiction now. Got over the snobbery, thankfully. It is such an interesting thing that we we have kind of compartmentalized this bold, crunchy, you know, vivacious storytelling into the YA camp as though you can't tell that kind of, you know, active, diverse, energetic fiction. You can't intend that for adults because adults obviously can only read, you know, Infinite Jest and, and, and uh, Thomas Pynchon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of conversation to be had about YA fiction, about children's fiction in general, about the, the lunatic ways in which we market and, and sell books um, right now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Pam says that she likes the movie too. I must not be sophisticated enough. No, 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 not, not sophisticated. This is not about sophistication at all. This is only about if, if you love Harry Potter and you love that movie, great. And as I said, the movie itself is enjoyable. It's only as a piece of, of narrative that it falls. And, and I'll, I'll be happy to, to point out, not just, of course, the things that, that bother me, but the things that I really enjoy too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yes, yes, yes. The uh, the um, Sunday session will be up on YouTube and it will be available in the podcast feed on Monday afternoon as well, of course. All right. I think that... Um... <laughs> yes, uh, there are some... There are some geographical confusions. Kay Clark asks on Twitter, Spatial question, third floor, then dropped down, but Dumbles ran to third floor to save Harry. Location in alternate space. Yes. Uh, there's also when um, when they plummet downward. Is it Hermione who makes the observation that they must have fallen miles? Um, which seems an insane and preposterous conclusion. We can only assume that there is magic afoot. Yes. Why the trapdoor in the third floor hallway wouldn't lead, as one might expect, to the second floor hallway, that is that is a real and legitimate question. But of course, we've talked about the, the spatial vagary of Hogwarts and its uh, its ability to reformat itself uh, according to according to need. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right, you guys, I think we're going to wrap up there. Um, yeah, because we're coming up on 10.30 and it has been uh, <laughs> it has been a frantic week. I'm going to end up doing three seminars in 11 days, which is going to be crazy. So we are going to wrap up here, but I will be back, as I said, on Tuesday, uh, on Sunday afternoon, excuse me, 2 o'clock Eastern, Sunday afternoon. We're going to talk about the movie and then we're going to talk about q and I don't plan on spending more than about, I don't know, a half hour on the movie, perhaps. Um, we're going to uh, move through that pretty quickly. And then general Q&A about this first book. If you have any thoughts, if you have any discussion points, if you have anything that you want to bring up, any things that you want to argue with me about, that would be great too, by all means. And if you can't be there, please just email me or stop by the forum or get in touch via Twitter, ask your questions there, and I'll be glad to address them. It is going to be a lot of fun. Guys, this has been an absolute blast. I have thoroughly enjoyed looking at this book, and I cannot wait to get into Pride and Prejudice. We have a few weeks break. We have just a little time off to, to rest and recuperate um, and then into <laughs> a seven week long exploration of Pride and Prejudice, which is going to be wonderful. But for now, let's stick a pin in this until Sunday. We'll come back then to talk about the movie, to talk about all things Harry Potter. Until then, take care and I'll see you soon. Good night, everyone.